Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to the second season of Raising Equity. I'm so glad that you came back to spend some time with us. And to kick off our second season, we have a great researcher who's going to talk to us about how family and context and relationships impact the well-being of queer youth. Dr. Katie Hyden-Roots is at St. Louis University in the Medical Family Therapy Program. She's Director of Clinical Services and a Certified Sex Therapist. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. So I'd be curious if you would kind of just tell us how you landed on your research program, because I the reason I ask for the story is that I think it's important that we understand when we focus on queer youth, like yeah. queer youth aren't the problem. It's the context around them. Right. And right. so so often people talk about, oh, queer youth are at increased risk of insert so many things. You correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of the research is that they're at increased risk when the environment is not supportive. Correct. So a big piece of what research has um, illuminated, thankfully, um, over the past decade in particular has been uh, that what really matters in terms of those really horrible outcomes is family um, and is the environment within which they're growing up. So um when in a accepting and um, supportive environment, uh, queer youth look like any other kid, um, and there's no differences actually. Um, but it it is that environment, um, and so f- for me, the getting to this re- research, getting to this sort of topic area, has been both personal and professional. Mm. Um, I I grew up in the church, as they say. Uh, my dad's a pastor. My brother's a pastor now. Um, I really, really, um, I mean, religion organized my life growing up as a kid. Um, and and a, a piece of what happens in those contexts is you get particular language about sexuality. Um, you and get that, language about sexuality well, in the church? Well, <laughs> <laughs> or is it omission or distortion? <laughs> well, you you get a, a finite amount of ah, language. Okay. I'll say it that way. Like there's a real like, here's the four things that we'd like you to know about it. Um, and those four things really set up a binary of um, gay and straight. They set up a binan- binary around gender, male and female. Um, and then they set up a binary around right and wrong. Um, so there aren't a lot of options it's just sort of these are what is, and you need to be in this one mm. in order to be good um, and right. Uh, and then if you're not, uh, well, at least what was introduced to me was we have places where you can go to get fixed. Uh, so conversion therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would I would be in religion class and we would be watching videos um, about conversion therapy and they would be interviewing people who are part of it. And it was this wonderful story of um, redemption, oh my, change, that kind of thing. Really? But honestly, one of the most impactful moments for me is I was sitting there watching a video and there's this woman talking about her conversion or whatever. And she looks sad to me. Um, and I remember going, God, that doesn't, this isn't fitting. She looks sad to me. There's a sadness in her eyes. She's saying the right things. The language is there, right? So she's saying what she needs to say, but I emotionally, it wasn't consistent. How old were you when you saw this video and observed that? 16. See, I was a therapist when I was 16. I was going to say, wait a minute, (laughs) your clinical skills. (laughs) They developed early. Clearly. Uh, I was a middle child. So there was a, (laughs) 
<laughs> there, there was a lot of um, me reading people and, and, and really sort of questioning then what I was being told um, that led to a lot of conflict, um, as you might imagine. And also being an adolescent myself and really trying to figure out who I was um, and feeling like I didn't quite fit in the binary um, and I didn't quite know if, it, if I didn't fit in the binary, where did I fit? And not having any language about that. So it was a really, really um, sort of personal beginning. But, but then I found myself in my first job as a family therapist, being sent into homes, foster care homes, um, and encountering queer youth there and still not having the language entirely. Um, I had a few more things. I had come along. I had found ways um, to really uh, come to my own sort of personal beliefs about being affirming um, mm -hmm. of queer youth but not having the word queer and really just having still um, gay, uh, bisexual, and lesbian. Those are some of my three words that I had. But I was encountering youth who were not calling themselves anything, really, and just sort of struggling to make sense of it. And then also encountering parents who were going, uh, should we be afraid of this? Is this bad? What do you think? And I didn't, I mean, I feel like I had a personal story about that, but I didn't have professional sort of help or practice. Like, mm -hmm. what do you do right. um, as a therapist in that situation? As a person or as a friend, I could have said something. But as a therapist, um, I mean, this was uh, 2006, 2007. Okay. And so I still hadn't encountered a lot of research around what you do as a therapist to help these families. Yeah. Um, so when you use, you talk about yeah. language, when you use the term queer, mm -hmm. I assume you're meaning it as an umbrella term that encompasses mm -hmm. like non-binary in terms of gender and sexual orientation. Is that accurate? Yeah. So the idea, um, the, the reason I use queer youth is, is to be an umbrella term, but also um, with youth to allow lots of room for them to move. Um, I think when we get stuck in other labels, um, is he gay? You know, is she uh, trans? What is that? When we get stuck in that and then the pronouns attached to that. Uh, it, it, it leaves, um, youth sort of, um, being asked to make a choice, a choice that they might not want to make, might mm -hmm. not be ready to make, might be still exploring or wondering about. Um, and so queer allows lots of room for seeing these things as fluid and changing, um, with lots of possibilities. That's a really good point, right? Cause developmentally so much is happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't know if you if you could share a little bit with folks around like developmentally how we see sexuality, mm. sexual orientation, gender, mm -hmm. all of those things developing mm -hmm. in youth. I, I know that that in terms of like puberty, you know, your body changing, relationships, yeah. peer group, there's there's so much going on. So it mm. makes sense to try to give them as much space as possible to to grow and be fluid and and not feel like they mustered up the courage to say that they fit yeah. in a group. And then what yes. if they explore and grow further and they don't? Yeah. Then they got to come out again? Right. Well, so the whole concept of coming out is problematic in my say world. Say more. Okay. So there's a wonderful, wonderful um, writer and therapist, uh, psychologist actually up in Minnesota, Julie Tilson, who does some writing on this. Um, she's a queer theorist uh, and a, a social constructionist, you know, so language is a big deal. Yes. And she says the whole phrasing of coming out is is problematic. The idea that I have to expose myself to you, somebody who could hurt me, um, where the the impact of this is actually negative for me, and I'm supposed to help you out with this. Um, I mean, it sets up this whole power dynamic that's highly problematic. And so she prefers the languaging of being invited in. 
Hmm. Um, so I tend to use that language with my families about um, your your child finally invited you in to who they are. Isn't that wonderful? That feels so much different, mm-hmm. so much so much more uh, authentic. Mm-hmm. And you're right; it is. It's it's like it's a gift if someone invites you in. Right, right. And you're being invited into a relationship, so they're letting you into who they are in a way that is privilege and in a way that means you need to be careful. Um, and it puts the accountability and onus on the receiver of the invitation. Exactly. Yes. That's beautiful. Yes. I very much love her work for that reason, for giving me that kind of language to be able to say that. Because I think um, I found parents really respond to that, you know, in the same way that like if a kid admitted um, to some kind of like sexual abuse or trauma or bad experience, we would we would language it that same way. And so why not, um, why not use it here too, if, if it's... Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that also, that language also, I think, like you said, it gives them space mm-hmm. to move and not feel like they have to um, like perform something or show something, right? Right. Exactly. That's powerful. Yeah. She actually, one of her books is all about that, about the performance of queer youth. That that they're expected to be a particular way. Um, there's a, a really helpful um, word for me is homonormativity. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there is a particular way to be gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, whatever, right? Um, and that that becomes another policing system about who you are and how you're supposed to perform. Um, that really locks um, queer youth in because what if they don't look like that? What if they don't fit into that? Um, in the interviews I've done with queer youth. Uh, there was one in particular that stands out to me that fits so perfectly with that where, where uh, it was a, a cisgender a gay man. And he goes, because, you know, um, the thing is, I don't look gay, but I have friends who do. And they get they get like really picked on more than I do. Um, and, and, and nobody believes I'm gay because I don't look gay and whatever that means. Right. Um, and so he talked about that sort of at length and his sort of... Um, uh, shock or fear or concern about that, that he, in fact, the, what it set up in his family was he had to come out multiple times because they didn't believe him the first time. It's a phase. It's a, this, did it come out, come out, come out. Right. Um, like he, you keep being cisgendered and, and, and not looking gay. Yeah. You wear baseball hats. Like, I mean, like really stupid stuff. Like right. <laughs> but no, but that highlights. So I love this because raising yeah. equity is all about pushing us as adults to mm-hmm. do our own work, to be able to be adults in the lives of kids, to help them mm-hmm. understand themselves, others, and mm-hmm. be able to walk into their, their not just their adulthood, but themselves, to walk into themselves with an awareness of how systems are operating, right? So with an awareness that you have that there is not a binary that you have to live into or mm-hmm. p- choose in terms of your gender and sexual orientation, right? Like right to be able to be flexible there, but then also to help them to see if you, when you choose to identify that you then also don't have to like abide by these rules. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. That, that the rules um, uh, weren't necessarily made by you. So maybe you don't have to follow them. And even if they were made by people who identify like you, you mm-hmm. don't have to follow them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think about, yeah, like it, some of those rules around like, what, what do you have to wear if you're a lesbian or what do you have to, how do you have to be if you're a gay man? Right. Like it's very heteronormative and 
I mean, it's just rooted. It's it just is perpetuating the status quo around oh, gender yeah. and yeah. When you said that, I was thinking about you know how great it's been to watch like football players come out. Mm. So places where you wouldn't expect because I think about representation. So like who out there um, is queer and looks like me? You know, becomes a really common question. And, Absolutely. And and can I look like me and still be queer? Is also often a question. And so when when more people um, in places of status like that who aren't fitting into those binaries or stereotypes, um, it really opens up like lots of room for kids to be different ways right. and still sort of own who they are. Yeah. So what do you find, when do you find youth are starting to come into their awareness of their gender identity and sexual orientation, their queerness? Younger and younger and younger. <laughs> um, I had the experience um, maybe five or six years ago where the families that were coming in, um, more and more of those kids were younger and younger and younger and identifying um, either as trans or non-binary. And I was seeing fewer and fewer families who came in with um, a kid coming out as gay or lesbian. Um, so like younger and younger, meaning they used to be 12 and now they're seven? No, or? they used to be 17 and now they're 12. Okay. And I'm sure it's going to keep going down from there. Uh, so they're, they're, uh, they're really young and, 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 and parents are really worried. The gender thing really seems to get parents, um, even seemingly progressive liberal parents. So the other thing I, I have, I've noticed is um, routinely when the parents come in with a kid who's trans or gender non-binary, um, one of the things they'll say to me privately is, but I'm liberal. I, I, I support, I supported same-sex marriage. I supported, but I can't get my head around this. Mm. Um, and so it's not, what it's broken up for me is that binary of conservative versus liberal and all of that nonsense, um, is that most of us, regardless of our political affiliations or who we think we are, still operate under the gender binary. It's so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the parents were really reactive. Um, to it and not knowing how to talk about it and and even like really struggling with pronoun changes or name changes or um, I mean the the parents really really struggle and need a place to kind of process that because they're now um, up against everything they've ever been told learned yeah expressed experienced yeah. yeah so it's interesting that you say that they used to come out youth used to say come out as gay. But now they're coming out as gender nonconforming or trans, right? And I, I don't. You tell me. But my thought is that it's because, like you mentioned, representation, mm, language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it used mm -hmm. to be like we're almost we're more accepting yeah. in terms of sexual orientation, and yeah. there's less acceptance around the gender identity. But there's there's more exposure and language, and so young kids, if yeah. they're exposed and they 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 get some language around what they're feeling or thinking mm -hmm. or experiencing, they are. I would imagine more open to accepting that than us older folks who are like so rigid in our binaries. Yes. I would say the youth are much more accepting and open. And even among peers, there seems to be, at least in, I'm sure it's very context dependent. So depending on the school and where you're situated, but there does seem to be more of an openness around um, you know, transgressing these ideas of binary and really um, kind of poking holes in some of the logic of them and why, and why can't it be this way? And why do my genitalia matter? Um, so there's just a lot more pushback from youth mm. in, in a lot of ways. Um, whenever I have a, a, 
I have a small private practice. And so every time I have a new um, client start who's um, queer, I feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm learning where we're at now because uh, it just keeps changing. And there's sort of a keeping up with language and, and kind of what youth are talking about versus what you know, adults might've been talking about. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that because I think that that shows some humility and just models that as someone who, this is your research, mm-hmm. this is your area of practice, mm-hmm. you're still learning. And oh, I, yeah. just because so many, I hear from so many adults and parents in particular around their kids, right? Like they want to know, like, what do I need to know? What do I need yeah. to say? The kind of do's and don'ts. It's like, mm-hmm. it's always changing. Mm-hmm. And, and, there are ways in which you can kind of like be with your child mm-hmm. that can help, like you said, help them invite you in mm-hmm. that regardless of whether you make a mistake or say the wrong thing, that like being present in a way that's open and accepting. Yeah. yeah. What would you suggest? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, as, as a therapist, uh, I think humility is a good word. There's a lot of great writing now on cultural humility and that mm-hmm. being really the cornerstone. Um, and so that's something I've really taken in as a therapist, but also as a as a researcher that I I need to know that I don't know and and that it's changing and and that I'm learning and it's my job to keep learning. Um, so I can't sort of rely on everybody else to fill me up necessarily, but I need to sort of see it as um, this ongoing process um, for me too. So with parents, I I, um, I think of myself as modeling that for them, but also inviting them into their own sort of humility about this and what they don't know and that that's okay. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents to know and to have all the answers, I think, culturally speaking, um, even outside of this topic that yes. we're supposed to be all knowing. Um, and and we're so not. And have all the right answers. Um <gasps> But but that you don't, and actually, um, one of your jobs as a parent is to um, get to know your kids, not that you already know them. Um, and so what you thought you knew you didn't know, which is okay, um, and they're inviting you in now. And so let's see what else they're willing to share with us. Yeah. And, and let's let's kind of roll with them. Um, and I, I, I really... Um, as a therapist and as a, a researcher, attachment theory is a, is a, a guiding... Um, theoretical construct uh, that I use all the time to talk about uh, inner subjectivity. So this idea where um, your subjective understanding of yourself and your experiences is something I'm taking in and reflecting and understanding. And it's something I want parents to do with their kids. Um, Inner subjectivity is like a really big term. But another way of thinking about it is attunement, where I'm sort of like tuning into like a radio and really taking in and feeling what you're feeling and, and, and understanding it. And I think with queer youth in particular, there's more fear um, that parents experience, more anxiety, where tuning in becomes harder because that anxiety or that fear becomes this like cloud between the two of them and they can't quite get close enough. So the parents' fear is creating kind of like static. Yes, 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 yes. So they can't quite tune in. Right. And that again, is uh, it brings us back to this idea that the the queer youth are being the youth in this example, they're just being a kid trying li- living their life, right? Trying to have right. a relationship with their parent and the right. adults anxiety and and all of that is creating the static. Homophobia, transphobia, right? Like all that stuff for that it's parent coming that's up. coming up becomes just um like yeah, becomes static between the two of them. And then so it, what attachment theory says if, if if the parent can't tune into the child, then we have this insecurity that starts happening. Um and the the parent uh, doesn't trust the child. The child doesn't trust the parent. 
the parent can't settle down enough to listen because um, they're so reactive to everything that's being said. Um, so the kid doesn't feel heard or understood. Um, the parent, usually in fear, starts telling the kid about who they are. <laughs> Which then further detail yeah, it, <laughs> disrupts the attachment. Yeah, in, in therapy, it looks like the parent bringing in a picture of their kid from last year where they looked the way that they're supposed to look um, and going, but she used to look like this. This doesn't make any sense. Oh, that's happened? Um, oh, multiple times. Really? Oh, yeah. And and they don't do it with the kid in the room, which I'm always very thankful for usually, but they do do it just out of this sort of like fear and anxiety and I don't get it and I don't get it and I don't get it. Um, so uh, one of the things I really, really uh, encourage parents of queer youth to do is um, don't put the burden on your child to explain themselves to you. Um, go get some support. Um, and then when you're ready and you have the questions and the language to engage them, then let's do it. And that's part of what um, I try to facilitate. And and the research bears out that um, at least the, my study looked at how attachment security, even if a parents, even if parents are somewhat the language we use is rejecting, but essentially can't really accept or understand or support um, their queer kiddo, if they can stay in a secure relationship with the child. In other words, the static is low. Mm -hmm. They're really tuning in. Mm -hmm. The kid feels like. My parent trusts me and loves me and cares for me no matter what. The kid does okay. Really? Yeah. That's important. That's important mm -hmm. to know that that even if I have all this stuff that's coming up, if I can manage do it. my work and mm -hmm. can manage it, mm -hmm. that we can still stay attached. Right. 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 And yep. Go ahead. Well, I d I was remembering one of your research studies that I read that to me, it's kind of the flip side of it, that if you are a parent and you're rejecting and you're judgmental and you're fundamentalist in your beliefs, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. that brings in the religiosity piece, mm -hmm. that, that, can, that can impact and harm your child through the age of, was it like 30 something? 52. 52? Oh my gosh. <laughs> For your life. 52. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the effect lasted to 52 years old in our sample. Um, and those folks who fared the worst had highly um, religious fundamentalist uh, families that they came from, had parents who were very rejecting, overtly rejecting, like unwelcoming, you can't come home. Um, and as you might imagine, um, the, the attachment security between them and their parents was really terrible, um, really low. Um, they felt very unloved and unseen by their parents. So all of those things set up um, really high. Uh, we were measuring depression, okay. so really high depression scores. Depressive symptoms or actually diagnosis? Depressive symptoms. Depressive symptoms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And tragic. Yes. So I mean, what that tells us as adults is that we've got to do our work. Mm -hmm. There's a big piece of um, when when I have queer youth come in. Um, there's, a, I would say, fifty to seventy five percent of the work is parent work. Um, and so people get really worried, you know, that um, queer youth do need space for support. Absolutely. They absolutely do. My contention, and I think the research points this direction, is unless we intervene with the families and change the context, we can support them all day over here. And I, and I think that's important work. And I'm so glad so many people are doing it. But I want to change over here. And I want to engage parents because I do think there are more possibilities, even with conservative parents from more fundamentalist backgrounds. As somebody who grew up in that world, I know those parents desperately love their children. Absolutely. Um, and have 
And the other, the other interesting part for me about the more conservative religious um, groups is how seriously they take the job of being a parent. Um, and so for me, that's a point of uh, motivation. Um, they so seriously take their role and, and the uh, raising of children in a particular way. And, and if at least the church I grew up in, um, love was something that was talked about a lot and grace was something that was talked about a lot. So there's still language within those religious communities that I have found useful for helping them um, sort of bridge that gap between, um, I don't know if I can change my beliefs to go to a pride parade or, you know, vote for same-sex marriage, but um, I don't have to change my beliefs to love my kid um, or to enact grace in the way that I understand it. And that's really what kids need. Um, they need parents who still make room for them and still want, want literally want them um, and, and at least try to understand them um, and, and, and try to make that connection regardless of um, what's, uh, however they feel about, um, you know, LGBTQ identities. That's a hard needle to thread. Mm-hmm. It's Yes. And I have been told it's not possible. So early, early on in my research work, I went and met with somebody who worked with parents of queer youth. Um, and I was telling her kind of what I was thinking and what I wanted to do. And I was a doc student. So, you know, I was naive and very idealistic. Um, but she said, no, that's not possible. There's no, there's no bridge between those two worlds. And I oh, said, so like fundamentalist Christian yeah. parents, that there's no way to support youth, queer youth that are raised in that tradition? Well, there's no way of keeping those parents and youth connected. Ah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That there's no way of threading that needle. There's no way gotcha. of bridging that gap. Right. Um, and I remember walking away from that meeting going, that can't be true. Like, that, right. that can't be, that can't be, in my world, I was like, that can't be true. But it was really sort of demoralizing um, and, and I think one of the things now I, uh, now that I've spent enough time with some of these parents, uh, one of the things I understand is they don't think there's a bridge either because nobody's told them there can be. Ah, uh, so we come back to language. They've been given a binary choice. So either you're, you go to a pride parade and you become one of those people, one of those, you know, liberal, crazy people, um, or, or you stay in this camp and you honor your beliefs um, and that's the right choice. So they're given sort of this, these binary choices about who they can be, and they haven't been given a lot of gray space um, to know what to do in the middle. Um, and one of them, I mean, I, I had an interview with one dad, and um, I mean, he was in tears telling me about his years of struggle from going from a fundamentalist, um, coming from a fundamentalist background, and having um, a child who came out as lesbian and a child who came out as trans. Um, and desperately loving his kids and being told that he can't have, a relationship, can't have a relationship with them. With them. Mm -hmm. If they're going to choose that lifestyle, they just had to the cut, other language, cut him off. Cut him off. And then when he went to the queer community, he was told, you can't have religious beliefs. You have to choose your kids. Well, now, I don't think all queer groups or people would say that, but um, he felt in this bind about what to do because of how desperately he loved his kids. Right. Um, and just his struggle to find his way through that. And he has. He actually went and saw a very good therapist, he said, who helped him sort of manage that. But the other part that he talked about was he really wanted to have a therapeutic experience with his kid, and nobody would see him with his kid in a therapy context. 
Really? Because he was the problem. Oh, so he he was the he was the primary patient. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they're like, why bring your kid into this? Right. Because you're the problem. And your kid needs space where he he's supported and you aren't supportive yet. So we don't want to so bring we you don't into that bring space. Fascinating. Which which you would think, well, maybe they're scared. I, I would think you'd want to if the child is willing to come. Right. That I mean, that's what systems therapy is about, right? Right. And for me, though, it was another reminder of how much we don't know about doing family therapy with queer youth. Yes. There's exactly one study ever published on family therapy with queer youth. One. One. There's a bunch of theoretical articles. There's a bunch of, like, ideas. So tell me you have smart some impressed. <laughs> There's some really smart people out there with some great ideas. Um, I'm working with the people who did the one study on attachment-based family therapy with queer youth right now to work on sort of understanding this initial pilot with trans youth. Um, so it's not impressive, but we're, we're working on it, working on getting something there because there's, we need to help the therapists understand how to intervene with these families safely. Um, and in a way that's affirming to queer youth, but engages parents who are struggling. Yes. And that's exciting because it is, it is working with the whole system, right? The system of the family, right? The system of the religiosity, the mm -hmm. religion, mm -hmm. Uh, to help people who are inside those systems see mm -hmm. how they're operating and have some choice. Right, 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 right. To give families to other give options. them other options. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. tell us about the pilot. So the pilot um, was done by Jody Rusin um, mm -hmm. when she was at Drexel. She's now at Virginia Tech, uh, but she uh, piloted attachment-based family therapy with trans and gender non-binary um, youth and their parents. Um, it's a pretty small sample. We had seven whole families, um, but they went through 16 to 18 sessions of family therapy, which is a lot. Uh, and so we're going to look at um, video and do uh, qualitative process research to watch how families change over time. And um, in terms of using attachment-based family therapy, what worked, what had to be modified, um, what came up that isn't addressed in the model that we need to address in the model. Uh, so the idea is to get sort of a bottom-up look right. um, as opposed to just static outcomes, but right. also look at um, sort of the process. And there's uh, also exit interviews from the youth about the experience. So we're hoping too that that they'll inform what we do next. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You have a group here in town mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. queer youth and their families, right? Yes. Yes. So we have, um, we call it the family clinic for queer youth. Mm -hmm. um, and I Wanted to call it the family clinic because I wanted to be clear that we're engaging families. Yes. This is not just for um, the youth. Uh, a lot of people, you know, that become, they, how do you, in our world, we call it the identified patient. So the, um, the queer youth becomes the identified patient, the problem, the thing to be intervened with. And I, that, that's not true. Um, so when we were naming the group, I wanted to be really clear that we're intervening with the family because that's the, that's where change happens. Right. Um, and so we, um, we're, we're piloting this group of parents and kids, um, and, and then some sort of family groups and individual groups. We're noticing though, a lot of people are coming in, particularly the parents going, I don't think I'm ready to face other parents. Yes. Um, I was going to ask. That's a real struggle, um, but they're they're willing to come in. So we have a couple of just family therapy cases happening where they're not sort of ready to join a group setting because it feels 
I'm sure vulnerable. Um, And how does that intersect in terms of race, Mm, right? Like mm -hmm, I'm thinking mm -hmm. in the black community, we have a lot of um, judgment. Yeah. And, And so I can think of Folks who will say, "Yeah, I love my child." They've recon- they've done some reconciliation, but yet mm-hmm. to step into a group, mm-hmm. I don't know if they'd be able to do that. Yes, I think that's totally fair. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think the other part, like, because um, I've been approached by Black families and African American families in the St. Louis area about joining the group, um, and I'm also, you know, a white lady from the suburbs, so um, I'm fully aware of that position as well, and maybe wondering about me and the kinds of judgment I'll have about them. Um, so there, there is that intersection, though, of race that comes up a lot. Um, there's been some pretty good, well, a few studies anyway, about um, queer youth um, who are uh, kids of color um, and young adults uh, and, and how they are trying to um, reconcile um, or understand those two identities or how much of them gets to show up in any one place. And then you add religiosity. Right. So you have the church right. as well. Right. So are there any black families in your group right now? No, not right now. It'd be really interesting to to mm-hmm. to have a group of black families and uh, think about their experience yeah. cuz I feel like yeah. has anyone studied queer youth in who are black or kids of color involved yeah. in church? Ooh. That's that a relig- good question. I nothing's coming to mind, but that's a really good question cuz one of the problems with getting to that question is quite often most of the funded research has to do with HIV. So, so when it gets focused on um, particularly black gay men or um, men who have sex with men, which is the technical research term, um, it always gets predicated around HIV and AIDS. And mm. so there isn't a lot of like social exploration about their families right. or context. It gets real specific to like disease. prevention, disease, yada, yada, yada. Because when you said that, that's exactly where my mind went was all of those studies. Interesting. But nothing about, well, not a whole lot. I mean, there's one of our students did a study on um, black men from religious families, but it had an HIV outcome. Hmm. Um, and there's a little bit about family, but mostly it talked about the, sort of the don't ask, don't tell rules mm-hmm. um, in religious families mm-hmm. where people might know or don't know, but it's sort of on the, you know, on the DL, like nobody's going to talk about it. Right. Um, but we know. We love him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He he comes, he's in the choir and does right. all the things, right? Which is also a stereotype. But. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there, there's almost- a little bit, but there's really not a lot, honestly. Hmm. It's It's not a. I mean, I know current doc students um, in our field who are really interested in exactly that area and want to push forward in it. Yeah. So I'm hoping it's coming. Ah, uh, me too, because it feels really important. Yes. Uh, in our first season of Raising Equity, mm. we did a whole series uh, that was actually spurred by some of the homophobic comments that my oldest was hearing on Fortnite mm. and at school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we did this whole exploration of talking to folks who identify outside the binary mm-hmm. um, in terms of gender and sexual orientation. And uh, for every person of color that we talked to, like it's, it's a, it's, it's core, mm-hmm. right? Like, and oftentimes queer youth of color get lost in the margins. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it would be really beautiful to think about how yeah. to, Support those families and and navigate. Oh, yeah. Well, and they're some of the most at risk um, for suicide and violence. Um, I mean, trans women of color are 
disproportionately. Right. I mean, it's it's scary and frightening. And so those families in particular, in terms of an intervention, would be beautiful yeah. and needed. Hmm. Got me thinking. <laughs> So as we think about what advice you might mm. give to parents mm-hmm. and and talking to their kids about queer, being queer themselves or just the fact that queerness is in our society and should be yeah. respected and how, like, what advice would you give to parents who are listening? Um, I, I, the advice I usually give parents is um, to, to stay curious with their kids to ask more questions than have answers. So one of the things uh, that's recently happened actually to a friend of mine, her kid came home saying homophobic negative things had been happening and and she sort of got scared and was like, I can't believe my kid doesn't know how I feel about this. And I said, well, have you ever told them, right? Um, And and did you ask her more questions? Like, what do you think that means? And um, how did you respond? How do you wish people would have responded? Um, what do you wish your friend would have said to help them sort of imagine out other possible conversations? And, you know, one of the things I say to my kids all the time is, um, you know, people can love people of different um, colors and genders. And there's more than one gender or more than two genders. Uh, and we had this um, experience recently where one of my um, son's best friends is non-binary uh, in elementary school. And so we've had ongoing dialogue about what that means and how how he's understanding it, and um, and it's been wonderful. But it it has to be this conversation where you're asking questions and learning from and learning with and exploring things um, together, and then also you know having uh, you know having to sometimes share like I know you heard that homophobic thing, or I know you heard that transphobic thing. That's that's not us. Um, this is what you know. This is what mom believes. This is what I, you know, what I think is really valuable, that these are just people we need to love and and they're as worthwhile as you are. Um, And if we lived in a different world, they could be exactly who they were and this wouldn't be an issue. And so you find chances to get to impart that and say that um, and and, and correct some of the narrative they're hearing when they're at school, you know, context where you, you don't have control over everything that's said and your kids are exposed to other things. Um, And so needing to, really actively uh, be in communication with your kids about those things and not wait. I think too often parents wait until their kid's dating. Yes. Right? Like their kid's 15 or 16. They're like, okay, well, now we need to have the sex talk. And it's like, "Mm, this kid's been a sexual being since they were in utero. Right. (laughs) So the sex sex therapist in me gets really like, ooh, I feel like we need new development classes if you think you need to wait till 15 years old. Right. And, <laughs> and so often it's the fear on the parents' part. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where, that they're scared to talk to them so they don't. But they need those conversations early and often, right. ongoing, right? right? And you can't give the sex talk, even if you give it at five, <laughs> the five-year-old version, you still got to give it at six, at seven, or ongoing. Right, it's right, ongoing. Right, got to right. layer that knowledge. Right. Right. Yeah. And keep developing it. And I would say the same thing about gender. So whenever, um, at least in my house, when we talk about sex and sexuality, we're also talking about gender. Um, what does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl? What if you're both? What if you're neither? What does that look like? Um, how do you prefer to be? I mean, I have a, a five-year-old um, who identifies as a girl and will not wear dresses um, and knows that other girls do and that mm-hmm. this is a violation. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I just don't care. And I'm like, great. Right. Carry on. Right. So, but there's this ongoing conversation then too about gender and the way that we can transgress it, transgress it and not necessarily live into it. 
Um, my kids routinely comment on my shaved head <laughs> as like some kind of point of contact. Well, mom has a shaved head, so eh. <laughs> <laughs> like somehow like now they right. have license to do whatever they want. Any, everything goes. <laughs> Anything goes. But there's there's things like that. You're like, oh, yeah, I get, yeah, I guess that is a violation of all the ways that I'm supposed to be as a female-bodied person mm. and blah, 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 blah. Like, but but kids pick up so acutely and quickly, I think, on things that we're not noticing they're noticing. And for me, the fun of parenting has been sort of trying to understand their world and what they're seeing and, and, and really keeping up with it um, and then following as they're sort of getting through things. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to keep up. Oh. It's so very hard, hard to keep up. <laughs> it's very hard to keep up. Yeah. If folks want to learn more about your work, how could mm-hmm. they find you or follow you? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, but I'm also, uh, we have a website uh, through SLU's website for the Family Clinic for Queer and Trans Youth. Um, and then there's my faculty page there that has lots of um, my sort of current publications and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What's your Twitter handle? Um, at K-T and then Roots, my last name, R-O-O-T-E-S. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And you also, you mentioned you have a small private practice. Mm-hmm. Is that something mm-hmm. that people could contact you about? Sure. Yeah. So that's in uh, it's Webster Groves. Um, I'm there just one day a week, but uh, I, I share office space with um, uh, some other private practitioners. And I mostly see um, uh, things around sexuality and gender um, and couples and families. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming and sharing your your frameworks and your ideas and your research, it's, it's, it's important. And mm. I feel like it's a learning edge for me, a growth edge for me, as I think about um, raising equity, a lot of the work that we have done has been around race, mm. but some around gender and sexual orientation. And mm-hmm. so it's a gift to me when folks come and share their expertise. Mm. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you all for joining us. I hope that you learned as much as I did and that you think about how we as adults have our work to do so that we can support queer youth in being fully who they are. And hopefully we get that invitation into their world. Thanks for joining us on Raising Equity.